right. Welcome to the Productize Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Marquis. And today we have a remarkable guest joining us, also a friend, also a Productized conference speaker back when we had to do this virtually, Fabrice Demazri. Fabrice is a seasoned CPO and a true product visionary. His journey began in 20. 2002, so that was a long time ago, kids. <laughs> As a bootstrapping product entrepreneur from Series B to IPO, has made a significant impact on companies like TripAdvisor, Deezer, and IBM, just to name a few, leading diverse product teams across Europe and South America. We'll jump into that in a minute. So, throughout his career, Fabrice has been a mission driven leader, advising founders on product strategy, championing the French product community, and and advocating for diversity and ethics in tech. Join us to explore Fabrice's journey in mastering both B2B and B2C, understanding product strategy and his vision for the future of product community in Europe. Fabrice, it's truly an honor. It's a pleasure also to uh, be here very close to the Barbican Center in, in London in my, <laughs> my hotel room uh, to have you on our podcast. So thank you for the, the opportunity to do this in a, in a very last minute request. Um, so your, your journey is, is quite, you know, uh, interesting in the sense that you began as a bootstrapping, uh, a bootstrapping product entrepreneur back in 2002. So those were the days. This was just past the, the, the dot-com crash. Could you share some insights from your early days as an entrepreneur, the motivations that fueled, fueled into that journey? Um, because I, I guess you were really, really young when you started. Yeah, I was 21. Wow. Uh, Just fresh out of college? Uh, not actually, I jumped out of college oh, uh, to do a, this. A yeah, which is not something that you, you usually do in France. Um, the thing is, I've, I've always been a geek um, and I've always been very curious. So choosing one path was actually very hard for me, uh, for plenty of people, okay, but... <laughs> I know myself, and it was really, really hard for me. So, for example, I studied law initially because there was a mix of... You studied law? Law. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, because there was a mix of science. In a way, there was this analysis, this deductive work. And on the other side, there was a bit of art, the creativity, <laughs> there was some writing. Uh, but actually, after two years, I, I was really lacking action and, and discovery. So, in 2002, jumped out of a university and created a legal tech company. It was not called legal tech at that moment, okay, just translating from the, the people so listening what, what, to us. What was it? Well, actually, the idea was to digitize the um, legal processes. And I think that the vision was good. The big problem that we had was that it was not that acceptable for the lawyers and from the paralegals. It was too early. Um, and that was what made it hard because you think that you have something. So you were you were a very strange kind of law student because, of course, <laughs> you you knew a little bit of HTML and programming to do that. No, no, yeah. Just a little bit, but I had friends actually. Okay. So um, having friends is always good. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I had friends on the design side, some friends on the tech side, and we were all geeks and thought, okay, let's create a startup uh, at a moment when nobody was doing that, and when we're raising money was actually raising I don't know two k, and you were happy <laughs> because you could eat pasta and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, that was a uh, another time. All right, so you you started this company, and what what happened? Did it fly, or did it crash really, really fast? It crashed completely. Um, we lacked the understanding between something that could be valuable and the willingness of people to actually use it and pay for it. That was just too early. And actually, that was my mistake, because even if it was not called product at all at that moment, but I was responsible of that part. And we made something that was usable. And we were testing that on lawyers and paralegals, and actually it was usable. So we thought that there was something. And we completely missed the point of being too early and not having really a market, because people didn't want to pay for it. And that was that's this big, hard lesson. And it actually pushed me to... Um, read books and try to understand why things 
didn't work. This is how I, for example, discovered Crossing the Chasm in 2003. So I would have loved to read that before crashing the company. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the book everyone would, would love to read before they, they crash companies. But for some reason, they tend to read it afterwards. Uh, afterwards. So, um, or, or even when they read it before, sometimes they they don't take it uh, as uh, at heart as they should. So what I, what I'm what I feel is like okay, so this crashed and it crashed fast, or did it take a while to understand that this was this well, was crashing? One year and a half. Okay, that was you know fairly okay. Yeah. Sometimes people tend to to stay in the journey longer. What did you what did you do next? What did you go next. I created another one because I'm stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I created another one. Also in legal tech? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, The thing with me is that I never work in the same sector uh, two two jobs in a row. Because Um, you are curious. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So creating one in MarTech, uh, it was about um, helping um, luxury brands launch their product digitally. And they were really good when it came to launching it in magazines or doing events. But when it came to digital, they just sucked. Okay, they, they had people on the design side that were designing the products, but the, not the digital ones, the physical ones. And when it came to trying to invent an experience that should be as good as the one you should have using the physical product, they were so lame that actually there was a market. So the goal was to develop it, and we developed it, and we actually sold the company to um, a big advert company, um, which was called at that moment Euro RSG, and now is Avas International in mm-hmm. 2007. So it's the French company, Avas. Yes. Avas. Okay, yeah, exactly. it's a very big uh, player in the ad market. Okay, so 2007... You went back to school. Yeah. That's what I... Exactly. Because I knew nothing. Really, I knew nothing. You, you had the best... You know, I was just thinking about, about that earlier on, just before the podcast, that I would, I, 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 would, I would think that people have learned much more of creating a startup, especially if it's a very high-intensity project, right? Or they go through Y Combinator... Then actually they learn from uh, classical university studies. Yeah. So why did you feel this? Because after you know almost five years of doing a startup in the trenches and, and exiting, yeah. for sure you felt that you learned a lot about a lot of stuff, right? Hiring people, managing companies, selling companies, selling product, and so on and so forth. So why, why, why did you go to the, back to the university? I needed to understand why things had worked and why something had not worked. I, I feel that 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 really, really that deep in me, this kind of imposter syndrome a little bit, but okay, how can that be better? There must be a better way of managing people, of hiring people, of selling products and that I don't I don't know anything about. Was what did you go to for an MBA or what I'm, did you go I to? I went to business school, yes. You went to business so school. so went to business school in France. But but there was something that I couldn't do would be spend two years, two years and a half at school not working, right. not being connected to the to the field. So I made a deal with IBM and uh, they offered me a job was not that much paid, but paid enough for me just to pay my okay my daily life. They pay my tuition. Right, you were twenty six or twenty seven exactly. by then, right? Exactly. So it was a good deal for everyone. It was cheap for them. It was good enough for me, and I had I spent let's say more than half of my time at IBM. The rest at school, and was the only product marketing manager in France at that time. Absolutely alone on LinkedIn. <laughs> So when I see people now rediscovering product marketing 15 years after, it uh, makes me laugh a little bit. Uh, so yeah, when you're alone on LinkedIn, you have two choices. Either you're a visioneer or, or you okay, it's not the wrong, it's not the right path. <laughs> so I don't know which one was it, but but actually, actually yes, I was a product marketing manager and, uh, and that was great. But just to be too big of a company for me. Uh, too many processes, uh, not connected enough with where the product was done, and that was 
plenty of learnings. Really. What, what was the the product? Was there a product team in France back then, no. or the the product team was was in, in, in the, the US. US? Yes, right. Which which is something quite common, uh, you know, 15 years ago when I also started my, you know, my, my, my own product journey was that most, uh, companies, they, they really didn't have their product team, especially if they were American, um, their product team in, in Europe for that matter. So you were alone. LinkedIn was a very lonely place for you. (laughs) (laughs) So did you, you ended up getting out of IBM Yep, and that was when, you really said, okay, I'm alone, but I want to double bet on product. Yeah, yeah, because I loved it. I loved it. I discovered uh, Marty Kagan's first book uh, at that moment, roughly. And in IBM, there were plenty of people and plenty of uh, trainings about Agile and things like that. I discovered here and then through books, but now I have people to talk to at IBM, and that was great. And I I really learned a lot. Uh, But I didn't have any, I loved doing the product marketing, but I was really frustrated by not doing the product. So I needed to go back to that. And in 2010, well, I just went to London because why not? Okay. Mm-hmm. I had just been dumped by my girlfriend, which is one motivation to actually <laughs> do another adventure. And I say, why not London? I'm not that bad when it comes to, to speaking English. So, okay, let's go there and try a new adventure. And what, what did you do? I created a third company. In in the UK? Yeah, in the UK. And so it was a, um, a neurotech company, so uh, deep tech, let's say that. Very, very different from what I had done before. And I just created that because I I met with a crazy English guy, a genius, really, um, that knew about a technique very empirically. And I never thought about taking that and making it a product. So we were the perfect couple. What what was the product about? The product was about how to um, make sure that you could assess the ability of someone to take a critical decision Mm -hmm. in a critical situation. Um, So, for example, we worked with um, the RED, which is the the equivalent of the SWATs in the French police. Uh, We worked with uh, pilots from Air France, with pilots from... Uh, the, the, the the Royal Navy. Right. So so you you try to to assess um, their capability through some kind of simulation software or no? It was uh, actually a sensor so that was in live. It could give you before or in live um, um, a reading on what we could call the black box of your body. Um, if you go back to what it is, you need to imagine that your body has really to center of decision, the one which is conscious, which is your brain, and the rest is called the ANS, Autonomous Nervous System. And this is where all the reflexes will actually start. It's under your level of control uh, because by, by definition it's encrypted. Else your brain wouldn't be able to cope with that, to cope with sphincters, to talk with neurotransmitters, etc. Mm-hmm. So, and the problem is that because it's autonomous, you don't have access to it as a human being, and your doctors don't have access to it either. So we allowed, um, in a way, we created a kind of uh, Pierre de Rosette uh, to translate this black box encrypted and give access to the information that was in it. So you were measuring things like perspiration or electroconductivity of the skin? What kind of... No, actually, it's at the same time simpler and more complicated than that. Um, You have three um, sensors when you have neurons in your body. One is the brain, okay? The second is the stomach, and the third is the heart. And what has been discovered nearly 30 years ago now is that there's a balance between the activity of the neurons and the activity of the heart. So if you look at the activity of the heart, really, really, really tiny little changes, you can know what's happening into the autonomous nervous system. Mm. And now that that been, I think it's 1997 when the American Academy of Medicine decided of some standards when it came to this. But nobody had really used it as a product, some people try to use it, for example, for video games, but never worked because they never got how it was really working. Um, so you, you measured the ECG? Yeah, and we measured one part of it. 
So this was your third company. Now you were in the UK. Yep. What happened? Well, actually, went through plenty of iterations because with every deep tech technology, you have a notion of potential opportunities. And it's really, really hard to try to find the right one to start right. with. You have so many exactly. choices to do. Exactly. And, and it's, it's not mature. So you'd say that, okay, it's not even trying some adjacent market. It's that you could go on education, you can go on healthcare, you can go on pet care, you can go on entertainment. It's so large that it's really, really hard to, to, to choose. And because we were actually touching things that were pretty, um, say, sensitive, um, we didn't want to work with everyone. We didn't want to work in entertainment or insurance companies, for example, because they, when we were discussing with them, their will was to use it against the users. And for me and my um, um, partner, it was a no-go. We, we consider that our vision was um, a world where our values would be respected. And we could not accept to work with some of these people. Uh, the problem is that we received death threats, we received um, where our offices were ransacked, etc. because we, we said no to powerful people. And they understood what they could do with our technology. And for them, not working with them meant working against them. You learn saying no <laughs> in a very, oh, yes. in a very <laughs> stringent um, and stressful manner. So, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm laughing now because I guess those, those days are, you know, way back. Yep. Um, did you end up having product market fit with any specific market? Any yes, specific? on this critical situation, of a critical decision in a critical situation. That was one use case. And we managed to develop it. We managed to sell only this use case to a specific um, um, agency of the American administration that was the only one who could actually protect the technology. So they so went you sold the, the company to a specific. You ended yep. up exiting to yeah. Okay, unspecified agency. Let's mm. put it this way. Exactly for, for the moment. Exactly. Okay, so funnily enough, and and and, and you know. <laughs> I'm just not going to to ask you don't obviously if you don't if you cannot tell us the details but did they approach you or did you approach them Well it was a bit of a a mix of two we contacted by and say let's not go through the story but uh, one company was specialized in uh, doing sensors because we were still struggling with having the right level when it came to the sensors and this company, we talk, we did a demo of what we had using a simulator, a plane simulator, actually, uh, ones that we had tested with, uh, with the pilots. And after the demonstration, they just asked us, well, do you want to work with this agency? And at the moment, we thought they were joking, really. Uh, but in fact, they were working with them on another thing, selling sensors to them. And I thought that could be interesting. There was something to do. That was really out of luck um, because you don't just pick a phone and call them. It never, never occur like that. Or well, personally, I don't have the ego to think that I could call these guys and they would be interested But what I have to provide them with. Um, so that was really lucky. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Do you know if your tech is being used for good? Well, they cannot use that for bad, mm. by definition, because of who they are, of their status. Um, and that's why we chose to sell it, to protect it, because uh, we, didn't, we didn't get rich out of that. We would have been largely richer by sending that to Google or Facebook or, or an insurance company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but that was a choice of, well, is money worth... Um, Cursing yourself every day uh, when you look at yourself in the in the mirror, and uh, no, definitely not. Right. So it was uh, also an ethical decision. All right. So funnily enough, after this entrepreneurial um, experience here in the UK, um, you you kind of went back to your corporate uh, journey. You made some um, 
leaps towards uh, product leadership at Deezer, yep. which uh, if you don't know, it's like the French Spotify. Um, Tiga, of course, now one of the, the reference in terms of product consulting companies in, in Europe. And TripAdvisor, where until recently you led the, the product organization um, dedicated to restaurants in uh, to, in Europe. So what are, or what can you tell us a little bit about this leadership roles in various companies? You went from Series B to IPO. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, your functions, roles, and how did this go? Yeah, but uh, what was amazing that someone asked me really recently how to have an impact in the first three months as a CPO. And I had to think back about the differences between being a product manager or a product designer, let's say an IC, uh, a head off and a CPO. Um, and actually, when you're a PM, you're there to find the right solutions. By asking the question yourself, it's really roughly on the solutions. When you head off, your role is to ask the right questions so that the PMs will find um, the right solutions to that question. And then the CPO, your role is not on the solution, is not on the question, is to create the environment where people will ask the right question by themselves. And this is really what your impact is. You, you should, at the end, be as useless as possible. So the bigger the responsibility, the most useless you should be. And that was a big learning for me, in a way. Um, it, it comes with frustrations because at heart, I'm a craftsman. I've been building products for the last 22 years now. So it's been half of my life doing this. So how do you restrain yourself from being in the command and control and from taking the decisions yourself? Um, so in a way, I, I found it through transmission, um, and that's really, I guess, thanks to Tiga, by the way, the fact to have to build training programs, to uh, do conferences, trying to put in words things that I have learned, um, and how you can have a real skill is not by doing things yourself. What was the, the insight to to build Tiga, right, or uh, or Tiga? I mean, you, you correct me, the, the right uh, pronunciation you want for the company. When you guys started, there was very little... Um, this, I mean, the idea that you could hire a product manager as a service or an interim product manager was really not there. Yeah, definitely. So you had some kind of insight that said, oh, maybe we can do this. Yeah. What was the insight? And, and this was back in 2014 or 15? Yeah, 2014, um, 2014. So I was not part of the real creation of Tiga. Um, there was two... Two people, um, Hugo and Alexandre. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, um, when you take a look at their stories, Hugo was more initially a developer, so code developer and then business developer, which is pretty rare. That um, was really frustrated by the fact that he he lacked this moment where actually you could decide what you were building and not just building it. And on the other side, Alexandre was on a strategy board. And he was frustrated because he was giving advice to companies, but he was not there to build it and to see if it was working. So uh, they find this, that's a middle ground, middle ground, and they thought about products. And that was a big, big risk at that moment. And to be, to be frank with you, when I went back to France, so it was in 2013, I didn't have any money uh, on my bank account, and I, why I became an employee again at Citrate. And when they pitched the company to me, I wouldn't have put any money in it at that moment because I thought, okay, we are starting a product community. We have just one meetup in Paris. There are maybe 20 people coming. Is there even a market? But they stuck to it. They built it. And I joined them um, four years or three years and a half after they had created the company. Um, that, that that was a big, big, bold bet that they made, they did. I don't know if they are um, really conscious that 10 years ago, yeah, there was nothing. And they built it from scratch and they kept on building quality things and the SDR. So, yeah, congrats to them. So you're, you're known for your commitment to being mission-driven in product leadership And how has this character influenced your approach and decisions throughout your career? 
Well, the first thing is that whenever I could, I chose companies or products or markets where I could bring something to people, a fight for people, fight for someone. In a little bit, it's a little bit like I don't know if you know Tron, um, the 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 movie, but I was a little bit like this, you know. So when I created my first company. I thought it was stupid that Paralegal was spending so much time having to go through paper. Uh, when I created um, um, the neurotech company, I found that it was too risky for astronauts or pilots, whatever, to rely only on their hard skills when sometimes they're not, not ready to do things. And we had gone through Elstech and so same thing. Um, when you go to Deezer, Deezer was about artists, it was not about making money out of it, even if it's a necessity. But how do you make sure that any musician can have an audience and they don't have to go through, um, I don't know, battling against the big ones just to have people to listen to them? When it's very complicated, it was very complicated before because, well, if you go, I don't know, to FNAC or Walmart, whatever, the number of CDs that were actually available were really limited mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of the real estate. Right. So it really changed that. Um, working for restaurants is the same. Restaurateurs are people that work their asses off. Sorry for the, excuse my French, but I'm French, I can do it. <laughs> you uh, can do it. I can do it. Uh, every day, um, they have, I'd say, 10, 12, 14 hours of work how do you make sure that you can help them reach success, whatever is their definition of success? Some would be just having people coming and they're okay with that. Some would be, I want to, I don't know, go from where I am to Michelin. Some would be, I want to open new restaurants. And you need to respect that. And that's very, very hard to help them do this because they have very limited time. So for me, it was really trying to fight for something where I could have an impact. Um, and I refused working with some companies when I felt that was not that mission deep inside. Uh, when I went back to France, I worked at Sightrade. And Sightrade, that was not a mission. It was what we called an order-to-cash um, company. So um, your users could be the CFOs, credit managers, but the core user is a cash collector. Mm -hmm. And cash collector is... Not an, well, it's an, it's, it's an exhausting work. And you know, what, what is a cash collector? Cash collector, you actually call people because they, they, they have a debt and they need okay. to call it to, to pay you back. Okay. So it's, it's a cash collection company? Exactly. Okay. Um, and we were helping cash collection companies or, or just companies doing cash collections. Any company will do cash collection right. one way or another. That's part of business. Exactly. And um, it's an exhausting job. And you're not well paid. And usually you don't try you're to... You're talking about the people in the call center is doing these calls. Exactly. and Yes, of course. And and everybody can imagine that you want... Maybe you do that as a student, but you don't do that for your whole career. Well, some people do because they don't have diplomas, because they uh, went to a country where they were not speaking well the language, etc., etc. It was the only thing they could actually find. And so people are great in doing that while doing it with, uh, while respecting the people in front of them. They don't threaten whatever. For example, we were working with Nespresso or not. Nespresso will never insult you or threaten you because you haven't paid your coffee. It's not the way they do things. But I, I find my mission by trying to improve the lives of the cash collectors. So it's not sexy at all, okay? But the fact that you could... Um, limit the cognitive load of these people was enough for me to go every day to the office and try to build things even better. What kind of, what kind of things did you do to limit their cognitive loads? Was, was, and because you learn so much, I mean, I, yeah. mean, I, 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 I remember um, in, in this past experience where I, where I joined this uh, the call center operator just to learn how how it goes, and it's it's really eye opening because the kind of things that you hear 
people saying on the phone, uh, it's it's a reality shock, right? Yes, definitely. So what kind of things did you do and what was your approach back then? Well, I spent a lot of time with the cash collectors. So I started my job by doing cash collection myself mm. for two weeks. So you did it yourself? Yeah, I did it myself, Which just to understand. Super hard. Yeah, it's super hard. And you, you see the reality when uh, rationally people were just... We were providing kind of a an Excel table with names and and and, and amounts and a, a telephone, and mm-hmm. you had to do plenty of clicks to try to understand and answer the questions. And people thought it was enough. Now you have people that are not available. Then you have people that might insult you, and you have people say, "Yeah, but I paid it." Oh. Sorry, so I need to go through my notes to understand if it was okay. Or no, I didn't pay it because it was broken. And you have some people cutting you back in the middle. So how do you handle that? And not knowing what people go through will make you make really rational choices that will be completely disconnected with the emotional reality of the job. So spending time trying to find shortcuts, um, for example, using a lot search. So we leveraged a lot elastic search at that moment when they could just, instead of just putting the name and having the name and accessing to the notes, they could have just, uh, it's stupid maybe, in the results we're giving you the um, if they, how many, for example, items were to be paid and there was um, any litigation uh, going on, etc., etc. So easy access to the information. Um, it went through a lot of UX uh, redesign. Plenty maybe of small things, but bit by bit, allowing them to uh, have um, a tool that will organize around the use cases instead of having something that will actually force you to follow an engineering logic that is so far from reality. Okay, so you, Fabrice, you've worked in various sectors, uh, of course, legal tech, tomar tech, deep tech, fintech, food tech, streaming or music streaming. Can, can you share what is the commonality in terms of your approach um, to get insights of each sector and and which one was the most challenging? Well, patterns would be listening. Um, that that's a bit cheesy, I know, and everybody say you need to listen to your customers, but trying to really listen not only to um, the problems but to the needs and to um, the reality of people. One thing that I've always leveraged to crack a situation was. Okay, what are you going to do with it? And if it's not here, what happens? What will happen? And usually this is where you connect to the real needs of the people. It's not about, there's not that figure on the dashboard. Is okay, if there's no figures on that dashboard, what will happen? How will you use that dashboard? And actually I'm using the dashboard to put that on slides. Okay, so maybe I can push you to just not export that to Excel, but you can just copy paste it. And that would actually fit perfectly in the PowerPoint. Maybe that's okay. Or maybe what you want is alerting. You want to know when things are going in the wrong way. You don't want a dashboard. You want an email or SMS or whatever that will say, hey, there's something which is not right and you need to connect to the tool right away. So really listening to what is the real life of people or what would be the real life of people always um, helped me understand the markets, what was the dynamics, how people were making decisions, should it be of using, not using, buying, not buying. So both internal customers and yep. and, and external customers. Exactly. Okay, so l- let's go to a specific example here. Um, in, in food tech, your experience um, has been working for um, TripAdvisor yep. and more recently to The Fork, yep. which I guess in French is... No, it's The Fork. It's, it's The Fork. People joke it's La Fourchette. Yeah, because the, the it used to be La Fourchette and the company was created under, the, under that name in France okay. and became The Fork uh, as one brand, which is a TripAdvisor brand, just like you could say TripAdvisor.com. 
is a brand of TripAdvisor. Uh, Viator is a brand of TripAdvisor. And The Fork is a brand okay, of TripAdvisor. Understood. <laughs> um, so l- l- let's go to the restaurant business because, um, of course, it's, it's something people will easily easily relate to, at least from a consumer side perspective. But of course, you had to have this double vision of looking to the business itself and to restaurateur and how the business is operated and also to the end client. So um, I don't know, can can you give us uh, some some story of how did you approach this and what what was some some of the the success uh, behind your um, approach at The Fork? What what is amazing is that when you naively when you enter the restaurant market, you have the feeling that of course there are different types of restaurants, different uh, cuisine of course, but it would be different price ranges. So you can have the three star Michelin and at the other time an Indian restaurant right on, on the corner, and you think that this is it, okay have maybe three or four different segments. But when you really go deep into the restaurant market, you understand that there are plenty of restaurants with the same price range, sometimes with the same cuisine, and they will handle things differently. Because it's artisanal. Okay, It's about craftsmanship. So even if some restaurants will be part of groups when you have, I don't know, franchise, for example... But plenty of them would be just human beings doing things their own way. And that was one of the, I'd say, the humbling lessons that I had right at the beginning. You cannot just put your rational uh, way of looking at businesses when it comes to restaurants. Some business owners are businessmen. Some restaurant owners are businessmen. Plenty of them are artists. They just love to do it. Some are socializers. They just love to, yeah, have people come there and give them food and spend a lot of time together. And that makes them happy. This is why they started a restaurant, not because they wanted to start a business. And then trying to understand what is their definition of success was for me the eye-opener. Right, because it changes. Exactly. So it changes. Between the people, so maybe, as I told you, just want my restaurant to be full and that's okay. I don't want to be bigger than that. I don't want to raise my prices. I'm happy because this is what I was looking for. Yeah, it's, it's a labor of love for most people, right? Yeah, exactly. That work in the business. And, and for others, that will change with time. So you open a new restaurant and then it's working and then you think about, okay, opening a new one or do you want to... I think be more on the bistronomic, so maybe higher hand. So that would change with time. How can you help them reach that success, their success, their definition of success, and know that the one that could have been developed by an external company would tell you that success is having more and more and more and more people paying a lot of money. All right, so with, with that in mind... You started working with uh, the Fork back in 2020, more 2022. 2022. What was your approach to increase the restaurateur success? Or at least the, their feeling of success? Yeah, we had three things, actually. The first one on the feeling of success was making sure that you were not um, blocking them. That That could be stupid, okay, but... Same thing, you need to go back to the fact that... So, it, so, so just just if people don't really know what what is the, 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 the use case of using the, the fork, yep. um, can you go through yeah. that? So initially it's to bring new people to the restaurant. Right. That was the initial promise. Uh, now the fork... So if you, if you are, sorry, if you, if you are someone that is that, that wants to go to a restaurant, you'll open the app... And you'll be able to book a restaurant exactly. and a reservation to exactly. a reservation for for a specific restaurant. Then there is search included. Actually, I'm 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 a user of of the fork in, in in Portugal, and and I think it's great for reservations. I don't use it for much more than that, but um, that's the basic use case. Exactly, that's the basic. And the case. promise for the restaurateur, you get you have new people that would not have come naturally to your restaurants by themselves because there's a discovery 
into, exactly. into the process. Exactly. And today we are today, and I love the company, but building a lot uh, around the ability to find restaurants, to find inspiration, find restaurants you can go with with your friends, find restaurants because the community, is, it's hot on the community. because It's hard to find the right restaurants. Let's make clear, it's not easy. Some people love finding the right spot, but it's never easy. So trying to allow people, same thing, to reach their success, our organizers or what we call them pilots, uh, at the fork, um, and it was uh, it was created 16 years ago with that promise where booking online was not a thing. Right now, the world has changed; it's been commoditized. So you need to change your promise, and that's the same thing for restaurants. Now you have Google Reserve, so even Google Reserve doesn't go from um, someone clicking on the button and providing you with the booking. You need to have someone like the fork to actually create the booking itself. But Google is endangering a little bit the business because they are, well, they want a share of the revenue. That's pretty normal. They're a platform. So they are platformizing a platform, which is a bit of meta thing, okay? Just like an inception. Um, so you need to bring new things to the users, both users, the B2B and the B2C. And when it comes to the B2B, just saying that you have new people going through the door, mm-hmm. okay, that's cool, but who are these people? And whether they've come by without you, you never know. <laughs> You're never sure, in yeah. a way. Um, so trying to develop what we call revenue management, which was the first break of success management. Revenue management is allowing uh, the restaurants to know which would be the impact or which is the impact of the promos that they can make through the fork. Because there's one thing that they can do as a lever to, for example, have people coming on a Tuesday evening in Paris, which is the hardest night when it comes to restaurants, is offering a number of uh, promo codes in a way that you can use directly in the fork. So minus 20%, for example, mm-hmm. at a specific moment of the service, for example, 7 p.m. Because you know that if people are coming, if the other people on the street see that there are people in the restaurants, it would attract them. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's, it's, so it's almost social engineering exactly. for restaurant business. It's, it's exactly this. Now, we could improve the impact of it. And the restaurant couldn't really choose by themselves. They have to call someone to actually set it up. Now it's the first break. Um, our goal is to make sure that they can say, okay, what is the success? Is it more people? Is it people paying more? Is people coming back more? Um, do you want people to come, in, to come back just with their friends? You want them to come back because you have a new item on your menu, etc., etc. So how do you give them more levers that just promos and the ability to book? So then, in a way, we allow you to go from where you are to where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, that had impact. And one of the things that uh, I've read on your uh, bio is that you have employed a number of strategies to achieve uh, an average growth of 30% on a yearly basis. Uh, and and keeping in mind that, of course, the, the last two years for the re- three years for the restaurant business have been uh, sp- specifically challenging due to uh, the COVID-19 yep. uh, pandemic. So what were these ingredients, <laughs> if well, you allow me to use this expression? Yes, yeah, you can. Um, I'm, I, I just did the math uh, very recently um, because someone asked me, uh, what was your average growth of the businesses where you were you were participating to? So it's an average. So some would be largely better than this. Some would be nine. No, no, usually it's double digit. And there are really three things. The first thing is really focus. And there's one thing where some a lot of people have difficulties with is choosing what you're not going to do. So whenever you read a strategy, usually we're going to be the champions of this and this, number one in that, go from that level of GMV to that level of GMV. Okay, that's okay. So so on that road, it's a destination, that's right. 
what are the points of interest that you would not pursue? And sometimes people don't have that in their desk. Never have that. Um, they don't say it clearly. They don't say clearly, for example, what are the key failure indicators? What are the anti-OKRs? The things that we don't want to pursue, we right. don't want to see. And usually that's largely easier for people in the company to understand how to make a choice if they are a do and a don't. Um, is, is that your own expression, anti-OKRs? Yeah. Is that something you came up with? or? Oh, yeah, um, maybe. I might not be the only one, but yes. Okay. Um, well, that's that's quite that's quite true. I mean, you you have uh, OKR um, oriented mindset, and definitely anti OKRs won't be as useful as OKRs themselves. So um, you've led also companies in in multiple locations in Europe, South America, and very different cultural. Um, Traits, you know, I guess UK, it's, it's different from France, definitely different from Spain and Portugal, where you also worked, or specifically in France uh, and, and Spain. Um, what about South America? What have you learned from this all this cultural uh, mix? Is product all the same? Do teams react differently? Some teams react differently, actually. There, there are two main trains that I saw. Uh, there was one trait which was how where you, um, um, you had bias toward action or not. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a bit, a bit too much, for example, towards action and not enough in analysis. Uh, if you take the example of Italy, for example, product managers tend to be, they, they love to build things uh, and that grades. And I love this kind of, okay, let's do things and it's, not, it's okay if it's not perfect. But you need to balance it a little bit by, okay, is it the right thing, which kind of impact it has. And um, I think it's cultural, uh, the way just to go towards action, etc. Let's uh, say hot blood, as they say. Mm-hmm. Latino blood. Hot blood. No, the fact right. that say, okay, I'm a Latin, Latin people. As French people, we're a bit of a mix between, I'd say, the German and the Latin. So it's always hard to define French because we are a mix of plenty of things. Um, but I think it is kind of being toward action. It's a little bit of... Um, a cult of um, of the leader too that you can find. Uh, I had a, um, a discussion with our, my former HR director, which is Italian herself, and was saying that there's still this cult of the leader, uh, the dad in a way, the pop of the family, mm-hmm. taking decisions, and um, it changes a little bit how people we receive. Um, um, I'd say the directions coming from the top. If you're in France, for example, and I'm not saying because saying France is better than whatever, okay, plenty of other bad things, uh, especially because we tend to doubt up a lot of things. Um, so to have to follow a leader when you you in a French company is not easy. Okay, it's not easy as a leader to just make sure that people we cope with it, that people we go on, we go into action because they tend to think and doubt a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, in Spain, I didn't see a lot of differences with um, the Italian when it came to product. South America, it was, uh, how can I say, they, they had a, a lot of philosophy. Um, maybe because they went through, so we were in Argentina. In Argentina. Um, they went through so many, so many crises. Right. That they have this philosophy of whatever happens, it happens, and we're going to find a way. And I really loved working with them because when it comes to product, just saying, okay, let's find a way. Maybe it's be the cheapest way. We'll see what happens. And if it doesn't happen, it's not a big problem. We'll find another way. Mm-hmm. Is for me very, very close to the perfect product spirit. So I really liked it. Uh, now, how do you make sure that you infuse these different pros and cons? Uh, bias toward action in Italy, uh, this kind of, uh, let's find a way which is the cheapest one and we'll make it grow from mm-hmm. Argentina and let's adapt everything and especially as leadership when you're in France. Um, well, you have two choices. Either you build teams, some teams in France, some teams in Italy, some teams in Argentina, some teams in, in, in uh, Spain, or you mix them and try to make it work because it's the cognitive mix that will make them, I'd say, be better 
and things. And this is what we did. Even if it was everyone in a bit in remote, we had um, uh, buildings, offices, but still you had your engineering manager is in France and the designer is in Spain and doesn't make it simple. Uh, but it allows us to not to have silos because they had to be explicit around the discussions and the decisions, make sure that everybody was on the same level. And at the same time, if you're a designer and you want to talk to another designer, it might be easy to talk to someone from another team, which is just close to you, but not maybe working in the same part of the product. So you are cross-politizing a little bit through this. Um, but it's not easy. It made me do a lot of work around culture, spending a lot of time in the different offices to make it work. So part of what you have done in in, in the past, I would say, almost eight, nine years um, has been related to uh, Lab Product Conf, which... Um, which the first edition was, I believe, in 2016 or... Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, other meetups like French Produit and French CPO. Um, so how do you how do you feel that this uh, face of... Uh, this aspect of your contribution to the product community and, um, and also... How, how how do you see speaking engagements and knowledge sharing with the product contribution to uh, contributing to its growth specifically in Paris? Because you were saying, you know, ten years only twenty people showed up. How is the situation at the moment? Well, now it's big. When you take a look on the community, we have nine thousand people uh, on uh, on Meta dot com, mm. uh, um, seven meetups in seven cities in France. Wow. You take only France. Um, with autonomous and responsible teams. So in a way, most of these meetups happen in, in French or in English. Usually in French. Mm-hmm. Usually in French. Uh, and you have one in Barcelona, one in Madrid. Um, you have three thousand people on Slack, but uh, we don't accept everyone on Slack. It's the vote of the community. Of French CPUs, two hundred people. Same thing. Vote of the community. So mm-hmm. the quality um, of discussions are pretty high, and it's. Um, Going back to your first question, for me, it's about giving back. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough, and maybe stupid, naive enough, whatever the qualification, to enter that market uh, 22 years ago um, and learned a lot, went through a lot. And, and definitely, I, I feel privileged okay, by plenty of, literally privileged. Okay, um, So just the, sharing with people or... Allowing others to share with people is for me my most direct way of giving back. I don't know why. Um, first thing, because I don't know everything. So plenty of people will have great examples that we use in some frameworks that they've developed up. I don't know anything about. So in a way, there's this pleasure of learning yourself. And the second thing is that when you have to transmit something, this is the best way to know that you know something, in a way. Because you have to find the patterns, you have to get from your head what you've learned very pragmatically, empirically, on the field. And try to say, okay, why did that work? And why didn't that work? In a way, circling back to 2002, when there was no literature and saying, oh, I would have loved to know all that. I would have loved to have a community to ask questions to people at that moment. So in a way, I'm trying to help my past self. In a way, it's a little bit the back to the product future, in a way, uh, to give my past self what I would have loved to do and love to have yeah, in that moment. Totally, totally relate to that. All right, let, let's let's maybe go to um, our almost uh, we're almost wrapping this up. But before that, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about ethical product management and, and diversity. You're dedicated to responsible product management. This has been a very passionate uh, focus of yours, um, and also fostering diversity. So, can you elaborate uh, your approach on this aspect in the industry and what you consider? They are specifically important. Yeah, I think that sometimes, because we are creating virtual things, roughly, we tend to forget that what we create 
actually has consequences that are not visual at all um, on the planet, on the people and on the economy. On the planet, it's now more understood because people understand we have servers running, uh, but at the same time, everybody jumps on generative AI without even thinking about the environment impact of it. So it's not part of our software still. Okay, It's kind of an add-on. That's one thing. Um, my approach is really considering that we create... Um, by creating a product, just like creating a person, creating, let's say, whenever you are parents and you're going to raise your child with a bunch of values and you try to expect them to have good behaviors towards the people that they are going to meet, towards the planet, of course, and if they have to have economical um, relationship with others, other companies that they want, well, they want behave like a-holes in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that could be stupid, but nobody wants their child to to be, um, 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 I don't know, a bully or whatever. And we want to make them good and respectful people. And we should do the same when it comes to product. Think about the behavior of your product just as if it were a person. Mm-hmm. And actually, when you take a look um, on an MRI, and people are using interactive products, mm-hmm. they have the same relationship we're, with an application mm-hmm. than with a human being. And we, because there's this, it's interactive. Right. It's this an, is the reason why. Interaction. Yeah, there's, there's the reason why sometimes that you, you put your TV on and the sound is really, really, really high, you tend to say, shut up to your TV. But don't you think that? Um, ethics nowadays uh, they play a bigger role in, in product development and, and management for for teams. Um, you know we have had a number of situations in the last past few years, uh, specifically after the the whistleblower cases with Cambridge Analytic and other um, other situations that are very well known in in the media. You don't see you don't think there's an, uh, an evolution towards the. The I, right path. No, but like I think it's just article in newspapers. You know, there's a guy who's, I, I'm going to misquote him a little mm-hmm. bit, but so, sorry about that, is that one people dying is a catastrophe. Yes, it was Stalin. Exactly. That was Joseph Stalin. One million is statistics. Yeah. Cambridge Analytica is statistics. Mm-hmm. And now you look, you, you, you look on the TV and you... You, you go on YouTube or Netflix or whatever and you watch a documentary about it and say, oh, wow, that's great, yeah. And with that change, what are you going to do on Monday? No. No, because yes, yes, it's big. It's not the same thing about the planets because you have a habit and you have frameworks and whatever. And the f- major frameworks, they focus either on the company, right. on the company profits. We talk about metrics, but metrics is just the plural of anecdotes. So it's, in a way... It's just an aggregate of um, individual actions. And we don't look at individual actions, we look at metrics. So what, what can we do? What can, how can we, we, when I say we, obviously people inside the product community in, in, in vantage points like yours, um, can advocate for initiatives or practice of, um, of professional practices to promote diversity, but also ethical considerations inside product teams and the broader tech industry? Well, when it comes to ethics, uh, now there are more and more books. Um, I wrote one with it's in French, sorry about that. Uh, we never translated it at SIGA at that time, but when I tried to create a not framework for solution, but at least for asking questions mm-hmm. around, okay, does my product behave in a good way? And there are plenty of small things you can do without even asking the authorization of your boss, if you're a product manager, um, when it comes to accessibility, putting that as acceptance criteria of a design, for example, of an evolution. It's not expensive. Uh, it won't actually go from, um, say, four times the time to build exactly the same thing that you should have with Diabetes. Uh, you have plenty of ways of when you take a look at a few cases not only considering what we call the happy path, but mm-hmm. asking what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. 
um, de- taking not edge cases, but stress cases. Mm-hmm. The stress where people would actually use your product in a stress level which is high or a stress level that you've created. You cannot behave the same way with someone which is stressed and angry as someone just has no problem and everything is okay. So it's maybe just using what we do, thinking about the user, but not thinking about the perfect situation. There are plenty of things that are not expensive in within the time or money that you can do on your daily basis when you're building a product. Mm-hmm. Like, like what? Like all these ones. The... Do you do you have any? I guess in your in your book in, in that that you wrote in in French, um, do you have any kind of a specific framework or recommendations or heuristics that uh, product managers should go through? Yeah, first things go through the what could go wrong. Right. Anytime that you talk about you think about a use case, existing use case or use case you want to develop, think about okay, is it just a happy path? What could go in the wrong direction? Just anticipate things. Second thing is imagine that, not that you're the user, but you're the user with a problem, stress, or you have your child, you have a broken arm. Can you still use the products? Because it's not, for example, if you're building something for, I don't know, uh, healthcare, of course you have to consider all of these and Mm -hmm. it's pretty easy. Now you'd want to be... Unaccessible, uh, for example, if you have one shine on one hand and you're trying to find the number, the telephone number of your doctor or right, your right. wife or your husband. So you need to think about these ones, try to put you in that situation. And so specific not, personas that are not situations the typical, of average, exactly. white guy. And it's not only about race or gender, whatever. There are plenty of situations which are really easy to understand. The broken arm situation when we are on a smartphone is really easy. Uh, when you have people yelling at you or your boss puts you a lot of pressure and you have only five minutes or you're in a call with a customer, mm-hmm. this is real life. So it's not extreme. And usually we don't design for these situations. We don't design for emotion. We design for the happy path. And the happy path is great, but you need to be there when people are uh, having problems. Um, My parents used to tell me that a bank or an insurance is an umbrella that is taking from you whenever it rains. And you don't want your product to be this. Yeah. Have a similar saying in in Portuguese. So, um, all right. Ha- as we wrap up, um, you are going to speak tomorrow at ProductCon, yep. and and of course, this is going to this podcast is going to go out after ProductCon has, has streamed tomorrow. So, uh, can you give us a sneak peek um, into what you'll be sharing and? Um, And tell us a little bit about why should we uh, listen to your talk, act like an owner, challenge like a VC, which is, by the way, quite quite an interesting uh, title. Yeah, I'll be talking about what we call the double impact low. So the double impact low is the fact that the reason of an organization, the reason to be of a protocol, is making... Uh, sure that you have an ROI for the company and for the user. And it might seem stupid, but sometimes we just take one and forget the other. But it's with a pure business lens, trying to make sure that your product org and your stakeholders will balance user value and company value. And this is usually one of the uh, biggest problems that we see in companies and especially now that everybody's talking about profitability, mm-hmm. is that maybe the stakeholders are not doing the right things, but it's not by doing some product explaining, talking about the Martikag and whatever, that we will solve the problem. They need to go through it. They need to face the uncertainty that we face as product people. Mm-hmm. And on the other way, As product people, not forget that we need to respect that double impact low. And some people sometimes talk too much about you being user-centric 
or even being data-driven, mm-hmm. um, thinking that you need to do whatever the user wants, or pushing, so invest two or three weeks more for this specific case, when sometimes you need to get back to say, okay, maybe those three weeks would be worth much more for the user if we invested somewhere else. So in a way, it's about the humidity that we need to have and about how to make sure that we all together take responsibility in the investment that we're making on the products and trying to find the best returns for both the users and the company. Mm -hmm. So that's the double impact law. Yeah. Very well. All right. So let's take this occasion to recap um, uh, some of the key insights here shared by Fabris. Um, But um, before we do that, uh, Fabris, thanks Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. It was really a pleasure to have you on, on our podcast. Um, and, and before our episode ends, um, I have one final question. So two books that you suggest to our listeners and, and why? Well, there's one which I really like. is The Power of Moments uh, from two brothers, the Heath brothers. It's really about... Uh, connecting with those specific moments of life that people are going through, really linked to my 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 thing about trace cases, edge cases, etc., and the fact that these are these small moments that will define an experience. Um, it's the peak moments and the end moments, just like in any experience in life. Um, and we need to be much more aware of what happens in the service industry sometimes. Um, and not only focused on what is the new tech thing that's getting out. The other one is what you do is who you are, uh, Ben Horowitz, um, because it goes down to what culture really is about. A national culture, of course, but product culture, company culture, the fact that it's something that is a norm accepted by everyone, that is what you do when no one's looking. Right. And we've seen that especially through um, the different various crises that we went through. So for you and me, uh, yeah, you say there was this uh, dot-com bubble in 2002 when I started working, but last we know the inflation, Ukraine, COVID, etc. But this is in times of crisis when you see the truth, when you see if company will be really products first or people first, because you have to make hard choices, it's very different from doing a pep talk in an unborning saying, this is who we are. Okay, we're going to see who we are when you are going through rough times. This is when things are revealed. And I really love that book because he went through plenty of examples, even in prisons, in gangs, etc., which is not the typical things you might think about when it comes to culture. And it's really enlightening if you want to understand more the national culture and the product culture, the company cultures. Very well. Where can people find you? And I know you are quite responsive on on LinkedIn, uh, (laughs) but can people approach you there? They prefer other ways. No, LinkedIn is perfect, is is my main tool. And then, well, if you if I'm going to conferences, just like the Protocon, I'm, I'm going to several ones in the in 2024, I go there. Uh, don't be afraid to just see me, ping me, or whatever. Sometimes it's really hard as a speaker to talk with everyone. Uh, but I'm always happy to talk and to receive feedback and to learn from the others. So don't be shy. Thank you. Um, for being with us and of course if you're listening to this thank you for listening um, and see you next time see you thank you a lot bye bye bye